3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders, past and present of the Kulin Nation, who recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Hello, everyone. We are on Thursday breakfast on 3CR. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> Morning. Um, it is the, what is it? Are we the 19th of September today? Yes, yeah. it is. Yeah. My God. I don't know if any, well, hopefully if you're up, therefore you're listening. It's light outside. Like, how great is that? It's mm. actually fully daytime. Spring has so sprung. So the sunrise. Spring has sprung. The sunshine. Yeah. We survived. <laughs> We survived winter. Winter, it's done. Yeah. Well, what do we have on today? Um, So first up this morning, we're going to be talking to Annalise, and Annalise facilitates um, men's behaviour change programs, and we'll be speaking with her about the drivers of family and domestic violence, and also about the limits of criminalising family violence and what the alternative solutions are um, to reducing harm in our communities. Yeah, excellent. And then at 7.30, we're going to be chatting with uh, Santilla Chiampe, who is um, one of the people behind the series at the Wheeler Centre called Not Racist But. Um, The next edition of that is on tonight. And the panel and Santilla is going to be discussing racial bias in the criminal justice system, from policing and legal aid to jury selection and sentencing. So we're going to have a bit of a chat with Santilla about that and also about her work more broadly. Great. And then we're going to be speaking with Dr. Fiona Foley, who is an internationally celebrated bachelor artist and a founding member of Bumali Aboriginal Artist Cooperative. And she's got an exhibition in the Ballarat. And so, yeah, we're going to be speaking with her about that. Yeah, amazing. And then at eight o'clock, we're going to talk with Patty Manning, who's the author of the recently released book, Inside the Greens. Yeah. And I think that's all. Mm. What a good show. Can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But first up, how about we head to some news headlines with Kate? All right. The officer who shot dead a Yamachi woman in Geraldton in Western Australia on Tuesday night has been stood down from duty. Witnesses said 29-year-old Joyce Clark was carrying a knife when she was shot by the officer on Petrol Street in Kailu around 6 o'clock on Tuesday night. She later died at Geraldton Regional Hospital where her friends and family gathered on Wednesday morning for a meeting to call into question why she was shot by the police rather than tasered. Following her death, it was announced on Wednesday night that all takeaway liquor in Geraldton and the surrounding areas would be restricted over the weekend. Protesters have been calling for an independent investigation into Ms. Clark's death rather than an internal review by the WA police. And to the Northern Territory, where the Labor government is being congratulated by sex work peer groups across the nation for introducing a decriminalisation bill into Parliament. The sex industry bill was introduced on Wednesday morning and will ensure industrial protections and rights afforded to sex workers as they are to all Territorians. The full decriminalisation of sex work is recognised globally as essential to workplace health, safety and rights for sex workers. 
Labour, this is really cute, Labour politicians wore hand-painted red umbrella pins to Parliament, which were made by sex workers to show appreciation to the government for prioritising the safety and human rights of sex workers. Um, And the bill is said to be debated in October. And finally, transgender swimmer Michelle McNamara is one of the new faces inspiring Victorian women to get sweaty. The Alpington residence has joined the Vic Health This Girl This Girl Can campaign, which strives to inspire women to move past fears and judgments to get active. The 64-year-old ambassador said she joined the campaign because she loved that her story could help others become active, and she encourages other women to get involved and share their positive messages. And that's it for all the headlines today. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks so much, Kate. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 7 past 7 on the 19th of September. This is an open invite to the global climate strike. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. Australia is already on the front lines of the climate crisis. Prolonged drought, flash flooding, catastrophic bushfires, severe cyclones and heatwaves. But just at the time when we need to ramp up climate solutions, we've elected a government in complete denial, chasing destructive profits for the few at a terrible cost for the many. If you can't make it to the gardens, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the strike. So you can hear the speeches right here on your wireless from 2pm. So join us in saying no more at the global strike for action on climate change. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. Come to a very special evening of music, dance and dinner. Joy of Freedom, Pacific Voices Sing Out for West Papua. Celebrate the launch of the CD Joy of Freedom on Saturday the 21st of September from 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Entry is $15 and includes dinner. Performers include the Chendrawasi Dancers, Pacifica Victoria Choir, Corianne, the Black Sisters, Black Orchid String Band, Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat, and Tatame and the Neighbours, because music is our weapon. More information at Facebook event Joy of Freedom, a 3CR supporter. You're listening to Thursday Breakfast with Em and Carly on 855am. And now we're going to head to a track by TK Midestar, and this one's called Awake. Late night, Polly, awake. 
rolling, rolling up and down the place. Late night, probably awake. Takes me probably awake. FaceTime, probably awake. Yeah, I take the grill with my one hand, devil in a dress, cabby tricks in a bum bag, swerving on the beat, drop the heat, then I dispatch, cutting all the weak leeches like a wristband, late night hitman, focus trying to get the big bag, basic slaps, make a neck, feel the whiplash, ain't no motherfucker with a drip, quit the tic tac, I don't have some niggas on my list like a tic tac, yeah, I don't really know how to be tired, I don't really know how to be tired, ADD my days like a riot, if the beat is David, I'm delighted, I don't really know how to be tired. Waving my flag like a pirate. 24-7, I'll be wide. 365, I'm alive. Late night, probably awake. Text me, probably awake. FaceTime, probably awake. Rolling, rolling up and down the place. Late night, probably awake. Text me, probably awake. FaceTime, probably awake. Rolling, rolling up and down the place. Creeping, uh. one deep outside we sleeping. B226, I'm a demon. Double heat, double the fun, double meaning. Niggas can't even handle what I be concealing. Selling cane, you're not able to have a weekend. Now you hostile. Is it because I'm getting money like a watch out? I'm never sniffing the trunk, but I'm putting the hits out. I'm making stuff films, bitch, I got the clip out. These silly niggas have me that they got our rolled out. Real rapping, real niggas get money, kill actors. Pussy, I'm pulling up on you because you capping. Niggas be pulling up. On you like yo, what happened? Yo, bitch, ass on Instagram chat. Bitch, I play tag with a motherfucking hand. Set a nigga up, I'ma make him look random. Got that shit and hit the pussy from the back. They gon' think you stepping off your bad leg. Johnny got pussy, wasn't playing mad. Uh, suck ass nigga, shit, he kept it rapping. Late night, probably awake. Text me, probably awake. FaceTime, probably awake. Rolling, rolling up another place. I'm doing drive-bys in a twilight highlight. Cicadas in a wildlife. CCTV on the side. I green night vision up from wide. I cannot go to bed. Late night, probably awake. Takes me probably awake. FaceTime, probably awake. Rolling, rolling up and down the place. Late night, probably awake. Takes me probably awake. FaceTime, probably awake. Rolling, rolling up and down the place. Stress and anxiety can lead to substantial barriers to So not looking at clock, it can lead to increased pressure, worrying, and back sleep. Creating new habits are obviously something to do with if you're having a nice night of sleep by doing them. Lastly, the best way to overcome insomnia is preparing your brain for sleep. QR Code is an LGBTIQA plus health podcast made by queers. Across eight episodes, hear us engaging with our communities, discussing diverse and intersecting topics. On In Your Face on the last Friday of every month. Or download from 3cr.org.au forward slash QR Code. And follow us on Facebook at QR Code 3CR. Funded by the City of Yarra. 
And that track there was Awake by TK Mindstar. Such a bop. So I hope that everyone's feeling awake on this Thursday morning here at 3CR, 855 AM. And now on the line, we have Annalise. Good morning, Hi. Annalise. Good morning. How are you going? I'm good. How are you doing? Oh, getting there. <laughs> I'm glad it's Thursday. <laughs> I know, me too. Um, so this morning we were hoping to talk to you about men's behaviour change work because um, you have quite a lot of experience facilitating these programs. Yes, but I'm also still learning. Mm. But although it's been many years, I still consider it to be um, every time I do a group, I'm still learning something new. Could you tell us a little bit about the um, structure of these programs? Yeah, so I think like agency to agency, it definitely differs. Um, but where I work, we use the Duluth model. Um, and I guess the premise of the Duluth model is that, um, you know, there's something about uh, in a heterosexual context, the men's use of violence towards women, uh, which means we are trying to do something about the attitudes and beliefs um, that you know, give men the permission um, or, you know, allow men to give themselves the permission to use violence against women. And so if we're looking at the men's behaviour change groups themselves, uh, the Duluth uh, model sort of runs through different themes. Uh, so, for example, we would look at trust and support, honesty and accountability, uh, non-violence, respect, isolation, um, nurturing children. And we would sort of go through all of these themes and uh, really engage in dialogue um, trying to, I guess, have some sort of critical thinking happening in the groups around um, how we are in the world, um, how we impact others um, in our lives and how we can move towards, you know, respect and nonviolence in our relationships. And, you know, pretty much I, I always sort of say in the groups, like everybody, including myself, we want to have this aim of having equal and wonderful relationships. And I would say every single person I've ever worked with also wants that. And Annalise, it's M here. For someone who, I guess, yeah, hasn't, has never been to a group or um, observed one or worked in that space, when you, um, you know, when you show up to a men's behaviour change group and you sit with these men and talk with them for those hours, what, what does that look like? What do you, what sort of happens in that space? Yeah, in, um, like I said before, it does differ um, where you are, but if you're in an agency that's like invested, I guess, in dialogue, like in the, in the groups that I co-facilitate, um, we would, I guess, have a theme of the night, and we, so the groups go for about two hours. So for example, if we were in the theme of um, nurturing children, in that sort of, we would spend three weeks on each theme, and in the first week, to explore with men how nurturing the children, um, all the ways they demonstrate that and the beliefs um, necessary to have those actions of nurturance. Uh, we would also uh, look at the connections between their feelings and beliefs, 
um, and really to sort of highlight that we're always making a choice in our actions. Um, oftentimes, uh, many of the men that I work with are coming into the group space or this work thinking um, that, you know, there is no choice in their behavior. So we often hear the things of like, she pushed my buttons or she made me do it or she, uh, you know, all of those sort of prevalent sort of dominant uh, statements that we sort of hear in our world. And we're, I guess, trying to like unpack this notion that it's like somebody else um, that has a, you know, decision to make about our actions and that mm-hmm. we can actually take responsibility for those actions. And then in week two, we would talk about how our people, participants in the group, are struggling to nurture their children. So what are the ways that they've sort of showed up um, as parents where, you know, they have disrespected their children and their children's mother, their co-parents, um, how, you know, what has what has that meant for their family members and why? So what are the beliefs and attitudes that sit underneath those actions? And then in the third week, we would do role plays. So we would actually practice what it looks like uh, for participants to nurture their children. So as an example, in group on Monday, we had a role play that looked like, um, so the scenario was something could happen where uh, you had, you know, done something in your relationship with your child that required repair, so something you were ashamed of something where you maybe leaned into parenting, um, perhaps like your father did. Many of the participants talk about um, their experiences of fatherhood growing up. And so, you know, we sort of refer to that. Maybe you leaned into that kind of parenting that, you know, you know you don't want to be doing. They talk often about not wanting to be like that. Um, but now we want your, now you want your child to clean your room, um, to clean their room. So, you know, we sort of role play, like, how will you go about having that conversation? And what are the things that are needed to, like, have the repair? Um, but then also to do the things um, that we want to be doing as parents. So, like, having, um, you know, some boundaries around um, the house and, you know, how the different sort of things uh, we require in terms of, like, sharing a house together. Mm. Um, so we explore what that conversation looks like and what we need to really think about our children and ourselves in the world to be able to have a conversation that leads to repair and accountability. And Annalise, why is it so important to focus on those underlying beliefs and attitudes when trying to understand the use of violence and then, you know, how to change that? Mm. Well, this is also like a really interesting question because there is, like, I guess, points of contention in men's behaviour change work where uh, in the past and possibly still now, um, many groups sort of used to engage in what I would call, like, anger management or, I guess, a focus on skill building. Um, and I guess in, like, the research and in what we know when talking to uh, people who've experienced harm, is that if you teach someone skills or if you concentrate on anger as the emotion, uh, that we're not really getting to the heart of why uh, all the drivers of family violence. So we're not actually doing anything about the cause of that. And we know, like, in terms of, like, the Our Watch drivers, 
uh, we know there's something there around men's beliefs about themselves, about women, children, about their world. And so we sort of know we have to do something about that. And if we don't do something about that, then if we just teach just skills or if we just um, think about anger as a thing to, um, I guess, you know, develop tools around, we're not actually going to stop the use of family violence. Hmm. And um, Annalise, it'd be great um, to hear your thoughts about the limits of crimin- uh, criminalising family violence um, because yeah, men's behaviour change programs are used by the courts as something to, um, I guess, like divert men towards um, if they have been um, causing harm to their um, partners. And, yeah, just about also... Oh, definitely. Yeah, and that's also part of the tension in the work, really, because um, most men that come into the group that I run are mandated... Um, to be there, so by, so by the court. Um, but you would probably find that many men's behaviour change practitioners are doing group in different ways. Um, they're not there to punish or, um, you know, are not interested in, I guess, yeah, re-punishing men in that way. So most of the groups are about, like, thinking about transformative change, but they are very much linked to the criminal legal system which makes the work really hard because a lot of the sort of when we're getting to know participants, it's trying to unravel this idea of like someone holding you accountable um, versus like internal accountability. So we know the criminal legal system is, um, you know, has that notion of holding someone accountable um, and, you know, that's when we see what prison's doing, um, what arresting, you know, what policing is doing. Uh, but we also, um, I, I guess, trying to do the opposite of this in the group. So we're trying to think about ways that uh, men are taking responsibility and accountability themselves. And, and I have many thoughts about criminalisation of family violence. I'm not sure if we have time. Do we have mm-hmm. time? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we definitely have time, yeah. Um, yeah, well, I guess, like, some of the things I've seen in my work and in the research is that it's really complex. Like we know that often police are the first and only responders, like responders to family violence for some people. So like I would never want to have like a simplified conversation about it. Mm. Um, I would always like support someone who wanted to, you know, someone who's experienced harm, who wanted to um, and needed to um, respond in that way. But we know it's also really complex. Like many uh, people who've experienced harm uh, you know, perhaps want to stay in the relationship. Um, you know, there's co-parenting um, and there's also, we know that many people are profiled in policing. So mm-hmm. it's not that, uh, it's not that in family violence everybody gets arrested. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, policing across the board uh, is, prof- yeah, is, we know that profiling happens across many levels. Um, of race and class, mental health, uh, and we can see that happening also in family violence. Mm. And we, yeah, we also know that prisons aren't working. And <laughs> yeah. so if we're sending people um, in terms of incarceration, there's no evidence in, in family violence to say that family violence decreases after somebody has been incarcerated. And we can also see so much misidentification as well. Yes. 
Yeah. Um, in terms of policing, so there's so many people who are experiencing harm who are now seen as the respondent. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have an IVO that is placed against them. Yeah, because how the um, criminal justice system sees family violence is very incident-based, whereas we know that um, you know, family and domestic violence, there are a lot of, um, I guess, like things that happen that build up to a point, um, but not necessarily all of those will be viewed you know, by the police and they'll just see certain incidents and that's when the misidentification occurs, especially when um, women are using resistive violence. Yeah. Precisely. And we also see that in the ways, like the different ways that shows up for people, like Aboriginal women are more likely to be uh, arrested in that situation because of the stereotypes, like the dominant myths and stereotypes we have about certain people in this world, which then means that when police are responding um, to a family violence call, um, they are responding in that way that, um, you know, slides into those dominant narratives. Mm. And they don't spend the time to understand the patterns of coercive control that may have been occurring in that relationship over over time. Mm-hmm. And Annalise, when doing men's behaviour change work, how do you ensure that you keep survivors in the room and that you keep people who've experienced harm at the centre of your anti-violence work? Completely. Well, it's the reason I do this work um, and why it came into work, it's also the reason why men's behaviour change groups began in the first place. So the history of them was that uh, victim survivors uh, wanted, but, you know, there were so many services um, legitimately set up to support people who've experienced harm and they were saying, well, we want people to work with our partners because, you know, we know there's many different reasons why people don't want to leave their relationship um, and but they want their partner to stop being violent. So that is really the centre of my work. We also have our family safety contact, which means that there are people working with participants, partners, our family members, and we work really closely with... So me as a, a facilitator in a men's behaviour change group, I work really closely with the family safety contact workers, and um, they're always, you know, in my mind and in the ways that I'm doing this work, and we're always talking about... Um, the impact of our behaviours and I guess one of the things we're hoping to do is to develop empathy around how people in our lives experience us. So in the group room, you know, we're always talking about partners and past partners and children and how we want to work towards having more respectful relationships with them. Yeah, we could just talk um, for the rest of the morning, Annalise. <laughs> but, um, yeah, thank you so much for joining us here on the show and we'd love to have you back another time. That would be great. Thank you so much. And I love your show. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. Bye. Most LGBTIQ people experience positive, intimate and family relationships. However, like cisgendered heterosexual people, some LGBTIQ people experience abuse and violence in their relationships. With Respect is a new family violence service for LGBTIQ plus Victorians, providing counselling and recovery programs for victims and survivors of family violence and help for people using violence who want to stop. With Respect is a partnership between queer 
Clear Space, Thorn Harbour Health, Switchboard Victoria and Transgender Victoria. For more information, visit withrespect.org.au or call 1800 542 847. With Respect is not a crisis service. If you need immediate help, call 000. A 3CR supporter. Victoria's roadside drug testing program is not about road safety. In last year's governmental inquiry into drug law reform, it was noted that Victoria's RDT program is falling behind on latest evidence regarding impairment. Currently, Victoria Police can charge people for detection of either cannabis, amphetamines or MDMA. But those detections do not correlate with impairment. Impaired drivers should be removed from the roads and that's why we're urging an inquiry into Victoria's RDT scheme to ensure that the resources that are currently employed to make our roads safer are being properly used to make our roads safer. Help us refocus road safety onto what makes roads safe. Sign the e-petition parliament.vic.gov.au forward slash council forward slash petitions. And look for the Inquiry into Drug Driving Reform, Petition 117. A 3CR supporter. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It's 7.30 and just before we were chatting with Annalise Arthat about her work doing men's behaviour change programs and the importance of centering survivors in anti-violence work. Up next, we have a track. Yes, we're going to be playing Camouflage Rose's new track, Salaire. You know I got a busy body body In and out girl I ain't nobody body One time ain't no need for lovey-dovey Feels right if you see nobody body Oh, I ain't go waste your time Arguing and good time dreaming I ain't go waste your night Get it right, come along, get your guard down Yeah. 
October the 28th to the 31st, some of the worst climate criminals will be gathering for the International Mining Conference, IMARC, at the Melbourne Convention Centre. Blockade IMARC is an activist alliance committed to putting a stop to the mass destruction caused by extractive industries across the globe and the harm they cause to communities and ecosystems. We need your help to be part of this blockade. Find out how at blockadeimark.com or check out our Facebook page, Blockade IMARC, a 3CR supporter. And that track we played before was Solaire by Camouflage Rose. And you're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's 7.35 and up next we're talking with Santilla Chingape about the Wheeler Centre event, Not Racist But. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us on Thursday Breakfast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. To kick off, could you just let listeners know about this incredible event um, that you've been behind, the Not Racist But series at the Wheeler Centre and what it's all about? Sure. Um, so we started Not Racist But last year. Um, in its initial iteration, it was uh, a full-day anti-racism festival. Um, and it sort of stemmed from thinking about and having conversations around racism and I felt that part of the discourse um, that was being had publicly was very much centred around um, what is and what isn't racist. You know, there'd be panels on television or, you know, people would write um, pages in newspapers just sort of trying to figure out if a particular incident that happened to someone um, was racist or if it made the people that said what they said racist. Um, and... I think that's a very limiting way of thinking about and talking about racism because racism um, is, 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 you know, is about power. And, you know, when we're talking about racism, we're talking about, you know, how systemic this power um, manifests itself. And, um, you know, racism was very, you know, just to simplify history a little bit, what, you know, was a product of, um, slavery and, and, and the result of uh, this economic system that was that was created to ensure that enslaved populations remained enslaved. So, you know, racism was created to justify that, to ensure that um, whatever was being profited from um, slavery um, could, you know, built what, uh, what was then the new world. And um, that system, despite the fact that slavery was abolished, that system itself continued... Um, to, to thrive, um, and it's it, it's still part of part of a lot of our societies to this present day, and a lot of um, researchers in this space sort of look at racism and they can kind of break it down into three categories. So there's the, the overt racism that we're all kind of very familiar with, you know, when um, you know people hurl racist words at people or. Um, you know, the, the, the things that we've, we've, been, we've been educated to know um, isn't okay. And then there's what's known as implicit bias or unconscious bias. And these are the prejudices that we all carry with us about humans. And this can be anything to do with gender or race or sexuality. Um, and we, 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 in, in the racism space, these are things like racial profiling, um, et cetera, that, that manifest themselves in that behavior. And then there's Institutional racism, and this is the way institutions uh, sort of uphold these structures 
unknowingly um, and lead to poorer outcomes for people from, um, you know, certain backgrounds. Um, and so the first season of Not Racist But looked at what do we mean when we're talking about racism and what what what, what is racism in an Australian context because, you know, our history... Um, is, 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 is quite unique and, 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 and obviously it's about acknowledging um, the, the, the racism that um, has you know, happened to Indigenous Australians and that they continue to endure. Um, and also how it shows up within groups of people that come from migrant refugee backgrounds that identify as non-white. Um, and once we laid that foundation, we had those conversations, we decided to build on it this year. Um, and Not Racist But Season 2 is looking at the ways in which institutional racism manifests itself. And I believe that tonight's um, version of Not Racist But focuses on racial bias in the criminal justice system. Just before this morning, we were chatting with Annalisa Fat about men's behaviour change work and particularly about the limits of criminalisation and you know the, the racialization of policing, for example, um, when it comes to family violence. Could you share with us a bit about what you're hoping to discuss tonight in terms of racial bias in the criminal legal system? Yeah, like like I said, I mean, you know, this this the second season of Not Racist, but is looking at institutional racism. We started off in the workplace and seeing how that 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 plays out, and then we went into the health system, and this time we're obviously turning our focus to the criminal justice system. And part of it is, um, as you as you say, it's about it's about uh, just Figuring out just how how racial bias shows itself um, within the criminal justice system. So we look, we're, we're hoping to sort of have this conversation right through from policing to legal aid to jury selection um, and sentencing um, of what we First Nations people um, because there's data that we, we 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 do gather and that gives us a bit of an insight of how racism does manifest itself in, in, in those communities. I mean, we know that Indigenous Australians account for about 2% of our population, but overall they make up, you know, a quarter of our prison population. Um, you know, there's been reports about how, uh, you know, uh, prisons in the Northern Territory, um, you know, accommodate essentially the majority of them um, hold uh, young Indigenous Australians, if not all of them, um, in the Northern Territory particularly. Um, and the statistics, the statistics go on and on and on. And it's, it's, it's very clear from um, the perspective that I was telling you when you're, when, you're, when you're defining racism outside of just, you know, someone doing something bad. Um, it's clear to see the patterns unfolding and, and how that manifests itself across different groups of people. And then obviously here in Victoria, we've had very interesting cases around um, young people from um, certain African backgrounds, African-Australian backgrounds, that have uh, reported incidents of racial profiling um, and where uh, they perhaps have been prejudiced in, in the sentencing. Um, and that's where things like unconscious bias come in, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's kind of about going, you know, there is an acknowledgement um, in, in, from, by many people, by many academics rather that work in this space, that, that, that racism does exist within the criminal justice system, just like it does in, in, in all the other sort of systems that we've focused on, because it is part of, um, of, of our society more broadly. But it's about, okay, if we are acknowledging, how do we start dismantling it? How do we ensure that 
people aren't being disadvantaged because of the colour of their skin, um, when 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 they encounter, you know, uh, you know, people that that that, that are representative of the system. So if, if you go to the hospital, um, you know, you don't want to think that you're going to be, you're going to get any, you know, your service isn't going to be as good as the next person simply because of the colour of your skin. And also, you know, thinking about the criminal justice system, you don't want to think that just, you know, if ever you, uh, you know, are unfortunate enough to end up, you know, interacting with that system, that, that, that your outcomes and your sentencing might be harsher just purely based by the colour of your skin. And so I think it's about having that conversation and seeing just how um, insidious it is in many ways, how we can we can begin to address it, um, what changes perhaps need to happen at a policy level because really that's where a bulk of this change can actually happen. Um, but also just really raising the awareness of people. Again, it's kind of getting getting that 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 conversation, opening it up to tell people that, you know, when we're talking about this, we're not just talking about someone just being a bad person or being bad intentioned because that's not, that's not what we mean um, solely when we talk about racism. And um, we're fortunate because we've got some really, really wonderful um, panellists joining us with the conversation tonight, including um, Fiona McLeod, who's the senior counsel, and um, Roxanne Moore, who is a Noongar woman and she's a human rights lawyer. She's um, on the board of the... She's actually the executive officer of the National... Uh, of the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Legal Services. Um, and Tamar um, Hopkins, who's from the Flemington Kensington... Uh, legal centre, um, and they've been very um, instrumental in really um, advocating for police accountability, particularly when it comes to racial profiling. Um, they've represented a whole bunch of young people in this state that that have been victim to racial profiling. So I think I think it's going to be a really really great night. It's already booked out, which is amazing. So I'm really looking forward to it. Absolutely. And around this time last year, 3CR Thursday Breakfast did a special broadcast called um, Enough is Enough Beyond Hashtag African Gangs, which was a really incredible panel of speakers um, who came together to talk about and sort of dismantle uh, and challenge some of the dominant um, media narratives that we were hearing at the time, um, which reached a particularly sort of like vicious frenzy around like this like racialized crime panic. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, a year on, I guess, from that, from, from what we saw a year ago in terms of this um, manufactured uh, crisis around what was, you know, the, the so-called African gangs, um, where are we now? Has, was that just a moment in time? Like what's, yeah, what's sort of happened over the past year and what, what is the role of the media around um, sustaining that systemic racism? Yeah, and the media, just like any other, you know, system is also, I mean, like I said, first of all, we all, there has to be an acknowledgement that, you know, racism continues to, uh, play out in Australia. So, if, if, so if, if we can make that acknowledgement, then we know that it will show up in every 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 system, you know, and every 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 institution of power. And the media is not um, removed from that, you know, regardless of how some in the media might view themselves as being quite progressive and all that sort of stuff. I mean, if if if, if we're able to sort of go that part of the way in which racism manifests itself is that sometimes people not, may not be aware of their prejudices. They might not be aware that. Um, in, in, in documenting and telling some of those narratives, it's repeating centuries-old stereotypes uh, entrenched in, in racist tropes. Um, and, you know, that, that, 
you know, where are we now? I, I mean, I started my career um, as a journalist the year after. It was uh, 2008, so it was the year after, at the time, uh, Immigration Minister Kevin Andrews. Um, there was there was an incident that, that happened here in Victoria that led to the death of a, of a, of a young South Sudanese um, teenager. Um, and that sort of fueled what was the beginning of the very um, racist uh, narrative surrounding uh, people of African descent here in the state, particularly people from uh, South Sudanese communities. And at the time, the immigration minister, uh, you know, sort of put a stop on um, humanitarian entry from people from those parts of the world because of um, a lot of a lot of what was being reported about these communities and this idea that they were troubled and troublesome and all that sort of stuff. And that narrative has kind of stuck. It, it hasn't really left us. I mean, every year there's an iteration of it. I think the African gangs was just a, a newer version of the same thing. I think 12 months before the African gangs, there was the mythical apex gang that we were told was running rampant around Melbourne and causing chaos. And I just, I, 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 I just don't have the energy to have those conversations. Like I said, I think, I think we already know that racism exists. Uh, it's about talking about how do we dismantle these power structures that, that, that really have a, a devastating, in many cases, um, consequence in people's lives. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not interested in having to sort of uh, explain uh, or talk about, you know, why certain groups of people commit crime. I mean, when you look at the stats, pretty much all groups of people, if not everyone, commit crime. So that's not a new thing. So what does it mean when we say, when we focus on certain groups of people and we try to justify their behavior, you know, by blaming the, their race, by saying, you know, no, no, you know, there must be something about this group of people that's causing them to commit crime. That's absolutely not true. That's racist. That is absolutely blatantly racist, you know. Um, there is no link between crime and race. And the fact that we still are stuck in having that narrative and, and rehashing that and the fact that the media still keep um, partaking in, 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 in sort of pushing forward these racialized narratives doesn't surprise me at all. Like I said, we're, we're not already comfortable in making the admission that racism exists. And therefore, these things are going to keep manifesting themselves. I don't think it's, I don't, I don't, I, it's not anything that I see changing anytime soon, if anything. Um, I w- wouldn't be surprised if over the over the summer we get another narrative that sort of tries to demonise and vilify people of African descent or other, or other other non-white groups um, in 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 this state or even in this country perhaps. And a- again, you know, it will be people of these communities that will be forced to defend themselves from very racist narratives. And you know, how, like how how many times do people have to tell you, no, no, no. It was that individual that committed that crime. It wasn't a whole community of people. But somehow we don't believe that, you know. We want communities to come forward and apologise for things that they didn't even have anything to do with. Yet we don't actually ask the same of communities that are, you know, in the majority. We don't ask people that are white, for example, to explain themselves whenever another white person commits crime, which happens. Um, no one asks, you know, white Australians to uh, sort of explain themselves when um, the, 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 the Australian that committed the, the, the terrorist attacks in, in, in New Zealand um, 
did what he did. No one said, oh, you know, explain him, you know, you must all be like this. No one does that because, you know, when the privilege that comes with, 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 that, with that power is that you get to be seen for who you are as an individual, as a human being, and you get treated as such. Yet that's never extended to all groups. And part of that reason is because of racism, and that's what I'm very interested in talking about. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, just for, to let listeners know, if you're interested in listening to 3CR Thursday Breakfast's um, podcast from last year, Enough is Enough, Beyond Hashtag African Gangs, that's still available online because as sort of Santilla was talking about, one of our key aims in that podcast was to look at the deep and structural roots of anti-blackness um, in so-called Australia, which, you know, inform, which are the origins, I guess, of these, like, media narratives that cycle through but are nothing new. Um, and Santilla, just to finish up this morning on Thursday Breakfast, I was reading the other day that I think, am I right, that the UN is honouring you this year as one of the 100 most influential African people in the world, alongside the likes of Lizzo, um, which is just wild. And I just want to say, like, massive congratulations. And yeah. how can people find out about your incredible work more broadly? Uh you are right. It is wild. <laughs> it's just, I, it's amazing. Yeah, I, I, I got an email. It was like on the eve of my birthday and I honestly thought it was like a spam email because I was like, what? <laughs> like that's so random. <laughs> it turns out to be legit. Um, and so uh, I'm heading back to New York next week uh, to go and receive this honour at the UN, which is wow. uh, pretty exciting. Um, but yeah, in terms of my work more broadly, uh, my I try to update my website as much as as much as possible with all the work that I do across um, film, television and uh, print. Um, and, yeah, my website is just my first name, my last name, .com. Um, so, yeah. Amazing. Well, I do encourage listeners to jump online and check out all your fantastic work. Thank you so much for joining us this morning to let us know about the Not Racist But event tonight at the Willis Centre. It's a shame it's booked out, but um, yeah, encourage listeners to follow everything that you do. Thanks so much for joining yeah, us this morning. Thank you. And just very quickly that if people um, can't make it tonight and miss out on tickets or whatever the reason, those uh, sessions are always recorded. The Weedle Centre always record a podcast and um, a video which goes up uh, shortly after the event. So you can catch up to all the past sessions, which I would uh, encourage everyone to do. And then you know, keep an eye out for, the, for tonight's one in the coming days. Beautiful. Thank you so much for joining us this morning on Theresia Thursday Breakfast. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Come to a very special evening of music, dance and dinner. Joy of Freedom, Pacific Voices Sing Out for West Papua. Celebrate the launch of the CD Joy of Freedom on Saturday the 21st of September from 6pm at the Brunswick Town Hall. Entry is $15 and includes dinner. Performers include the Chendrawasi Dancers, Pacifica Victoria Choir, Corianne, the Black Sisters, Black Orchid String Band, Izzy Brown from Combat Wombat, and Tatame and the Neighbours, because music is our weapon. More information at Facebook event Joy of Freedom, a 3CR supporter.
You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55 a.m. on your dial. It's 5 to 8. Just before, we were chatting with Santilla Chingape about the Wheeler Centre event, Not Racist, but up next, we are so lucky to be joined by Fiona Foley. Dr. Fiona is an internationally celebrated Budula artist and a founding member of Bumali Aboriginal Artists Cooperative. Good morning, Fiona. Hello. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. So you have this incredible exhibition at the moment um, out in Ballarat at the Ballarat International Photo Biennale. For listeners who haven't had the chance to head out that way yet, if they walk into the gallery space, can you describe what what they will find there? Oh, they'll be looking at work from my career over the past 25 years when I did my first photographic series called Bachelor Woman in 1994. And then they'll be looking at um, photographs that relate to race politics. And sometimes race politics has taken me into the other countries like the United States of America, where I've been able to work with Seminole people in Tampa, Florida, or African-American people in New York City. And then they might look at work that's related to the history here in Queensland about Opium and the legislation that was introduced in 1897 called the Aboriginal Protection and Restriction of the Sale of Opium Act. And they'll just see different bodies of work like the oyster fishermen and Aboriginal women who were kidnapped from the east coast of Queensland and put on fishing vessels and used um, indiscriminately and abused. So there's a whole variety of things that I'll get to see. Absolutely. And it's, yeah, it's an incredibly powerful um, exhibition. And because I've previously been more familiar with your sculptural work, so I was really um, excited to see your, like a, a whole survey of your photographic works. What for you, what do you enjoy about working um, with photography, particularly given this is in the context of a bigger sort of exhibition or biennale on photography? Uh, photography, well, I, I view all art as a means of communication. So sometimes it's easier for me to set up scenarios uh, photographically rather than, um, let's say, sculpture or printmaking or, or drawing or installation. So I get to think about things, I guess, for a bit longer, like a a longer gestation period where I can think about how would I execute this work and what am I really trying to communicate. So like the Oyster Fisherman series, that I was thinking about that for two years before I executed the work. And also in the photographs, there are specific themes that I use and I sometimes re- repeat the props. So in the Oyster Fisherman, the blue dress, was a signifier for the woman in the photographs who happens to be myself. And that's the only colour. The rest of the colour is sepia tone. So they're just like little nuances in the artwork. If you look closely, you can um, see that sort of detail. Um, Also, Fiona, um, there's also a soundscape that is accompanying um, your works and... How is it working with Joe Gala and Tila Watson around this? Uh, Joe Gala's bachelor, so he's a lovely man and he's got a wonderful, jovial nature. 
Sheila is someone I've watched for a number of years um, as a performer, but just on the edges because I was li- I wasn't living in Brisbane, mm. so I always wanted to use her down the track because I think she's a very talented artist and a great wordsmith. Mm. And so I approached her about using um, the dictionary, Butchler Dictionary, that my mother put together, and that was my mother's 20 years of her life she put that together. And Teela sang the song to me that she had um, constructed three new verses. And when she sang the song to me in my office at Griffith University, I was just bowled over with emotion because it was really like my my mother's life's work coming together in this one song and at that space being activated again where the language, we speak certain words but we don't speak it like um, fluently and to hear it sung was just another um, level of um, sort of otherworldliness that hadn't been activated since you know early colonisation period so for me this whole project and that song in particular is just a wonderful way to bring creative people together um, who may not, you know, well, before this project, Teela wasn't aware of our language, but she was able to use that written word to use it in a performance way. So I think it was a wonderful opportunity for her to come here and work with us. Mm, yeah, incredible. Um I just love how, yeah, Aboriginal artists always are very collaborative um, and work together to create these just incredible exhibitions. Um, and a lot of your work, um, so I've seen your work up, I used to live in Brisbane, um, in the State Library, um, and you really yeah. do a lot of that background work um, and really delve into the history. What history are you exploring in this um, uh, series at Ballarat? Well, like I said, there are many sorts of histories, but probably some of the bigger themes of racism, race politics, um, the legislation that indoctrinated Aboriginal people in the state of Queensland through um, stamping out opium because opium was legal Mm. in the state. So everything is really finely researched because these hidden histories that I'm talking about are not taught in our schools or universities. And I've always had a curious mind and wanted to know more. And so when I read that piece of legislation, there were two words that struck me. One was Aboriginals and the other was opium. So I wanted to know what opium had to do with Aboriginal people. And and the upshot of, of it is that opium was being given to Aboriginal people to addict them as a free labour force in Queensland. Now, that's not taught, and so I've been on this researching and reading and wanting to find out more since I was about 24 years old, back in the 80s, and I've bought book after book after book and researched and read a lot of things for myself, started to piece the jigsaw puzzle together because no one teaches you this. Mm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's very true. Um and also personally, I find it very interesting because my grandmother, she's Wangi Chinese, and then also my grandfather is Chinese, and so um, they grew up in Camerwil, um, 
Queensland. And so that legislation did impact them and also my great-grandparents as well. Mm. Yeah, the legislation did affect uh, Chinese people and in particular Chinese who were married to Aboriginal women and had children. So they amended the Act in 1901, but through that amendment, it allowed the state government to take children of those mixed marriages away from the parents and put them in as state wards. So that legislation was very cruel and racially motivated. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Fiona, we're unfortunately going to have to wrap up um, in just a moment, but... Can I ask, what, what's on the horizon for you or what are you either working on or excited about at the moment? Next year, uh, well, I'm working on a film at the moment called Out of the Sea Like Cloud, so that should be released in December this year. And next year I will be publishing a book from my PhD and that will be titled Fighting the Cloud. And the contract for that has just come through with... Uh, University Queensland Press, so I'm very excited about a publication coming out. Amazing, and we would love to chat with you again on Thursday Breakfast when that film and book come out. And lastly, how can um, people follow your work or find out more? That's a good question. I don't know. They just got to keep an ear to the ground. <laughs> and I guess they can also jump online and check out um, the Ballarat International Photo Biennale and head yeah. down to Ballarat. And I think that shows on until October twentieth. So you've got lots of time to head over there and check out um, Fiona's amazing show and the work of lots of other incredible artists too. Yes. Yeah. Oh, thank you both. Yeah. Thank you so much thank for joining you. us, Fiona. It's been a real yeah. pleasure. Okay. See you then. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. It's five past eight. We were just chatting with um, Dr Fiona Foley about her exhibition in the International, the Ballarat International Photo Biennale, which is on until the 20th of October. Guatemala. I'm Black Betty, and you can join me for Black Noise Radio each Thursday from 2 to 3pm. Join me each week as I serve you up a deadly fine offering of all things black as we explore black Australia and everything fabulous it has on the offer. We'll check out and see what's making black news locally and from right around Australia. And we'll explore all things Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and the deadly solid culture and people with a look at community news, views, music, culture and the arts. Hope you can join me for Black Noise Radio featuring black news, views, current affairs, music, culture and the arts from an Aboriginal woman's perspective. That's me, Black Betty. I'll see you Thursdays at 2. Red Alert. Numbers are needed at the Japurung Heritage Protection Embassy camps immediately. Sacred birthing trees on Japurung country need protecting. Over 50 generations have been born on these sites and the birthing trees themselves are 800 years old. 
These trees are being protected from the Victorian Labor Party's planned highway extension that is set to destroy this sacred dreaming landscape. The campaign to protect country is led by Japarang traditional owners who are calling on people from all walks of life for support. You can help by joining traditional owners at the camp on Japarang country near Ararat or by donating and putting pressure on Daniel Andrews to protect this sacred land. Visit dwembassy.com for more information and updates. No trees, no treaty. This is an open invite to the global climate strike. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. Australia is already on the front lines of the climate crisis. Prolonged drought, flash flooding, catastrophic bushfires, severe cyclones and heat waves. But just at the time when we need to ramp up climate solutions, we've elected a government in complete denial, chasing destructive profits for the few at a terrible cost for the many. If you can't make it to the gardens, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the strike so you can hear the speeches right here on your wireless from 2pm. So join us in saying no more at the global strike for action on climate change. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am. It's almost 10 past 8. Just before, we had the great pleasure of chatting with Dr Fiona Foley, internationally celebrated Badula artist. And right now we are joined by Paddy Manning on the line to talk with us about his recently released book, Inside the Greens. Good morning, Paddy. Morning, Anne. Paddy, for listeners who haven't had a chance to have a look at this book yet, could you give us a bit of an overview? Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a history of the party. It's the first that has been written. There's been histories of the environment movement. There's been uh, biographies and memoirs of Bob Brown and Christine Milne and so forth. Uh, but nobody has pulled the history of the Greens together. And I thought that was, you know, given that the party had its 25th anniversary at a federal level, the, the Australian Greens, in um, 2017... Uh, and is actually, if you go back to the very beginning of the roots of the party, it's approaching in 50 years in Australian politics. I thought it was time for a kind of, um, you know, critical um, warts and all um, examination of the history of the party and then a, a, in the sec- second part of the book a kind of reflection on um, some of the key debates happening within the party now. And why is it so important to look back to, you know, that period in the 70s and 80s to sort of look at the whole span of the history of the Greens Party and not just say, you know, the, the more recent dramas that a lot of um, listeners might be more aware of? Well, I think because I, I think there's, there's a long-run trend of disaffection with the major parties, you know, being Labor and the Coalition. That hasn't changed over 50 years. Um, slowly... Uh, you know, voters are examining alternatives. And I think that there's a kind of working up, you know, assumption amongst political commentators that the Greens are somehow, um, you know, interlopers, uh, that they're going to suffer a Democrats moment um, and they're going to, you know, go into a, you know, steep decline. Um, they'll make a mistake. They'll... Um, you know, make a, you know, get, get a policy decision wrong or they'll, 
you know, collapsed, you know, due to infighting. And actually, if you look at the history, um, I, I don't think that's what's happening with the Greens. I think um, one one thing I've done in the book is it chart the trajectory of the three biggest minor parties who've actually had representation in the federal parliament since the Second World War. First, there was a you know Democratic Labor Party after the 1955 split. You know the anti-communist right of Labor, particularly in Victoria, splits off um, and keeps the Liberals in power for a generation. Um, then you have the Democrats, um, you know, formed as a kind of centre-right um, party initially, uh, but rising quickly um, from the mid-70s and right through to the end of um, the last century. Um, they are the major alternative and they attract 10% of the vote, much like the Greens do now. But again, um, they, they, you know, collapse uh, really around the turn of the century, and that's where you see the the rise of the Greens. And I think w- the chart that I've done shows that actually while the, Demo- the DLP and the Democrats had a very rapid rise and then a peak and then a very rapid decline, the Greens' trajectory has been very different in terms of its um, electoral support. Uh, what they've done is build very slowly uh, and they've plateaued. Um, they hit a peak in terms of voter support in 2010, but they haven't actually gone into decline. And I think there's a good argument that they're not about to. Mm. Um, as you mentioned, you know, there has been... Last year was perhaps the worst year in the history of the Greens with bitter divisions spilling out into the public arena in the biggest states of Victoria and New South Wales and nearly splitting the party. Um, in both those states. And you've got simmering tensions in other state branches as well. But what the election results show, both the Victorian election in 2018, the New South Wales election in 2019, and the federal election in 2019, uh, they show that voter support has not collapsed. And, uh, and I think that's it. So I think it's timely to take the Greens seriously and really examine what they have contributed over their decades um, to Australian politics and why they might be a more enduring proposition than either the DLP or the Democrats ever were. And certainly how much more substantial they are um, in terms of their policy contribution to Australian politics uh, than something like One Nation or Clive Palmer or even some of the, you know, more kind of personality-oriented uh, little breakaways like, you know, um, Nick Xenophon or the Centre Alliance Now um, or, you know, Jackie Vanby Network. What you've got in the Greens is a real alternative, a real policy alternative, and I think that that is the legacy of decades of policy effort, uh, and I've traced that effort, and I think that that is an important... Um, that's an, it's, it's, it's worth it's worth coverage in its own right, and I just don't think it gets. I don't think the Greens get the coverage they deserve, and so that's why I'm, I embarked on this on this book project, which took three years and the hardest thing I've ever done. But uh, but anyway, it's out now. Yeah, Patty, it's Carly here. Um, 
I started reading your book. It's um, <laughs> very well researched. You start the book by talking about the Lake Pedder battle, and then you also move into talking about um, the Greens and the resistance to the Jabaluka mine. And you talk about the Greens, um, yeah, being very resistive um, and also um, quite like embodying of activism. Do you see the party's movement away from that really grassroots, or do you think that the party is still embodying that? Uh, that's a really good question, and um, and I think the activist roots of the party, you know, there was a break of sorts when the current federal leader took over, um, Richard Dinatale, um, you know, himself obviously Victorian, and uh, and took over from Christine Milne in 2015. And uh, Richard Dinatale is not a activist born and bred, you know, the same way um, Bob Brown. Uh, or Christine Milne, the two, his two predecessors as the federal leader. Um, they were both known for their activism. That's how they got their, uh, political profile. That's how they got elected first to the state parliament in Tasmania and then to federal parliament. Um, there was no question. Bob Brown actually did, was turned onto politics, um, originally by the Lake Petter controversy where, you know, uh, a beautiful um, lake in Tasmania was dammed unnecessarily by the state's hydroelectric commission in 1972. That was a national environment debate. Bob Brown, as a young medical doctor in Launceston, was, um, you know, uh, outraged, uh, and that led to him joining uh, the first uh, Greens Party in the world, the United Tasmania Group, which was set up specifically to protest the uh, damming of Lake Pedder. Um, you can trace through that 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 activist spirit from Petter to the Franklin. Um, I also go back to the Green Bands in New South Wales, um, which some of your listeners might, you know, mm. recall. Um, you can go to Jabaluka. You can go through to the Bentley blockade on Colson Gas on the north coast, and right through to the Stop Adani convoy this year. Um, mm. You know, up to Queensland, which I also went on with with um, part of it with um, with Bob and and uh, and uh, you know, hundreds of other people. Um, that, that that activism, that spirit of activism, is certainly alive within the party. However, the party is also a bigger operation now, bigger than either of the DLP or the Democrats. It's bigger than either either of them ever were in terms of its representation in state and federal parliaments, upper and lower houses. So it's a big. Um, it's not yet a party of government, but it has, for example, in the um, ACT and in Tasmania and at a federal level been a partner in government. And um, and it's a pretty big show. And so Richard Denatale's leadership um, is is partly to do with the, you know, I hate to say maturation, it sounds terrible, but... You know, the increasing professionalism and, and maturity of the Greens. And it's reflected in the fact that, um, Genitale himself is a, you know, medical doctor. Um, he's a, um, you know, very, uh, you know, competent, um, politician. You, you know, he, um, but he doesn't represent as strongly that activist um, that activist tradition. And so I think there's a question mark in people's minds. Are the Greens still got that radical spirit? I think the party still does. I think also, you know, we've, I just heard your ad pr- promoting tomorrow's climate strike. Mm. I think there's an increasing activism in the electorate, in particular, over climate change, but not just over climate change. 
Uh, and I think the times, you know, the, the Greens are, you know, Dean Atali's leadership himself it, it, itself is changing. Uh, you know, he's been there almost five years, well, it'll be five years come 2020. And, um, and, you know, I think they are, they are wanting to capture the new spirit of, um, protest, um, particularly around climate change because both major parties, especially following this federal election, uh, appear to be, well, in the, in the coalition's case, they're actively still, you know, in, in climate denial. In the latest case, uh, they seem to be walking away from the commitment to strong climate action that they took to the last election because they believe that that cost them votes, particularly in Queensland. So it may well suit the Greens, uh, and it may well, it may well force the Greens to get a little bit more activist again, um, given, you know, we have seen an upsurge of kind of anger uh, about climate change from the young, uh, whether it's the school strikers or Extinction Rebellion, uh, you know, and and the planet itself will will, you know, it, because the climate change is so terrifying. Inevitably, you know, we head into another hot summer. The planet itself is going to scare people into action. So, uh, yeah, I don't think that the activist roots are, have been lost. Mm. I think that there is there is. Um, you know, there's a kind of live debate and there are certainly Greens members who are very concerned to make sure that it isn't lost. Mm. Well, yeah, there's just so many topics that we could continue to delve into um, just because your book is so well researched. But unfortunately, Patty, we're going to have to wrap it up there. Uh, thank you so much for joining us on 3CR. Thank you. You're on 3CR Thursday Breakfast, 8.55am. Our guest just then was Paddy Manning, the author of Inside the Greens, available at any good bookstore. This is an open invite to the global climate strike. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. Australia is already on the front lines of the climate crisis. Prolonged drought, flash flooding, catastrophic bushfires, severe cyclones and heat waves. But just at the time when we need to ramp up climate solutions, we've elected a government in complete denial, chasing destructive profits for the few at a terrible cost for the many. If you can't make it to the gardens, 3CR will be broadcasting live from the strike. So you can hear the speeches right here on your wireless from 2pm. So join us in saying no more at the global strike for action on climate change. This Friday, 2pm at Treasury Gardens. You're on 3CR Thursday breakfast, 8.55am on your dial. It's 8.22, just before we were chatting with Paddy Manning, author of Inside the Greens. And up next, we're going to play you some audio from yesterday where supporters rallied outside the Federal Court building in Melbourne just before the opening of the appeal on behalf of Priya, Nades and their two children from Biloela against the government's plan to deport them to Sri Lanka. The decision on whether there will be a full court hearing was adjourned to today at 2.15pm. The injunction ends at 4pm today. So this is some audio from yesterday um, outside the court. Just think, Veronica uh, and Topica, what they could do with their lives if they're just given a chance to grow up in a safe, stable household in a community that welcomes them. And that's what we want to have for this family, that's what we want to have for all the asylum seekers that are being left in uncertainty at the moment. Thank you. 
Yes, my name is Hong Trong. I was a former member of the Victorian Parliament. My parents came here as Vietnamese boat people. And this morning, I woke up in between my two children, slow, quiet cuddles before I got to get them up out of bed, get dressed and take them to school. This is the luxury of being born under an immigration policy that can determine when people need Australia's help. This is not about, as much as they are, wonderful human beings. They are at risk. They are wonderful additions um, and much loved by the beautiful community of Biloela. But it is about what we are saying about our country's humanity. It is in tatters that this government can win an election and turn around and take this is so unfair. By their own rules, this, this family should stay. And at any given time from the time that they have been in danger of deportation, the Minister for Immigration, the Minister could have turned around, Mr David Coleman, at any time, for any reason, under his own laws, could say, okay, the immigration system is broken. This family represents this. Let them stay. There's a community that wants them and loves them. Let them stay. So let's be clear. This government's business is in the business of cruelty. They are not here about humanity. They hide behind some kind of religious um, and, and moral um, front. But by their actions, we know that this is a government that deals in cruelty. So we are here today because of Australia's humanity. We, as a prosperous, generous nation, have a responsibility to people who come to us to seek for help. It is not the whim of a government that has decided to use them as political pawns. These are lives, these are children, these are people that we are damaging instead of protecting. Now I stand here as the evidence of community after community that this country has clumsily but readily taken in. And it's people like yourselves, Australians who said not in our name, that have made my life, our lives, as Australians, as beautiful and safe and as strong as they are. What are we saying about this country's soul, its psyche, its heart, if we cannot change our minds on rules that are broken, on immigration policies that are wrong. Scott Morrison, David Coleman, here today, do right by this family or your government is cancelled. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. An insight from the community that has welcomed Priya and others into their family, into their community, and wants to get them back, wants to allow them to build their lives again in safety. James. James Cameron from Villa Wheeler. Uh, today I suppose I'm uh, just here and trying to echo the message of hope that all the people of Villa Wheeler, all the people of the Home to Villa Wheeler movement have been trying to send for this, for this family over the last 18, 21 months that this has been going on. Uh, just in terms of the way the government are talking about this at the moment, uh, they seem to be pretending that, that this family is not going to be deported to danger. They're pretending that they haven't been able to see or hear about all the travesties that have happened to specifically Priya and her family over there. 
to pretend that this isn't defaulting to danger is just ridiculous. Um, I just, they're not, they don't seem to be speaking our language at the moment or understanding the way we're speaking about this. So as mercenary as it must seem, I'll, I'll try to speak in their language at the moment. They, they've made so many requirements of people who are wishing to be new Australians and major ones are that they'll integrate into the community and support and work hard in um, wherever they are in Australia. And I just, <laughs> the idea of them integrating into the community has been proven so much by the thousands of people that have come out from Biloela to support them. Um, I myself used to work in the same meatworks as Nardes and I can guarantee you that that's incredibly hard work but it's also really crucial work as well for the area. Um, while other working opportunities brought or took other workers to different areas or different industries in the area, it was left to people like Nadez and Priya, people wishing to become new Australians that actually kept that business afloat. The business that had been supporting Biloela and the graziers of the region for decades. So they have met your criteria and I just the time for pretending is truly over at the moment. They need ministerial intervention. They need people to, our politicians to act as leaders because ministerial intervention itself is surely designed for, for a leader to use. When all legal avenues have been expended, then we need them to look and say, well, if they don't, if they don't intervene now, then this won't result in justice. That was James Cameron, member of the Biloela community, speaking yesterday outside the Federal Court building in Melbourne just before the opening of the appeal on behalf of Priya and Nadesh and their two children from Biloela against the government's plan to deport them to Sri Lanka. Um, that court hearing will be happening today as the injunction um, against their deportation ends at 4pm. Um, stay tuned. You can look up hashtag home to Bilo on Twitter to um, follow updates. And that is all we've got time for this morning on Thursday Breakfast. Mm. What a good show. Yeah, great. (laughs) (laughs) We chatted with just very, very quickly. We spoke with Annalise Arfat this morning about men's behaviour change, Santilla Chingape about um, systemic racism in the criminal legal system. And then we spoke with Fiona Foley about her exhibition in the Ballarat International Photo um, Biennale. And then lastly, Paddy Manning about his new book, Inside the Greens. And then we heard some audio just then from yesterday outside the court in relation to um, the, the movement to keep Priya Nadesh and their two kids in Australia and to stop the deportation. Stay tuned for Lost in Science. Come back for Friday breakfast tomorrow and we'll be back next week. Mm. See you then. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.